Well, good morning. As you know, we've been going through this sermon series on the book of Proverbs, and we've been hitting different topics like anger and friendship and laziness and hard work. And this morning, we're going to come to a very important topic in Proverbs. This is a topic that's spoken of quite a bit, and that's the topic of wealth and poverty. And Proverbs has much to say to us about the topic of money. And I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus, who is the central figure of the whole story has much to say to us about the topic of money. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that Jesus speaks to the question of economics more than any single social issue. I challenge you to read through the Gospels. You will find that Jesus speaks to the question of economics more than any single social issue. So, what can we conclude by that? I think just by sheer volume of words on the topic, we're able to see how critical Jesus believed it was for his followers to have right hearts and right practices when it comes to wealth, when it comes to money. Richard Foster writes, If in a comparatively simple society our Lord lays such strong emphasis upon the spiritual dangers of wealth, how much more should we who live in a highly affluent society take seriously the economic question? Now, without a doubt, we live in a highly affluent society. Amen? We have an incredible infrastructure, free K-12 education, health care, parks, public libraries. According to a study done by the World Bank, if your family income is 10000 a year or more, you're wealthier than 84% of the world's population. If you own a car and a house with internet access, you're in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. All right, so as 21st century Americans, we especially need to sort of tune our hearts to what Jesus has to say about money, and we should tune our ears to what the book of Proverbs has to say. It's going to drop some wisdom for us here. So I think it's fair to say that the message of Proverbs regarding money is nuanced. It's holistic and three-dimensional. It doesn't fit into our tidy boxes or simple phrases. In his exhaustive commentary on the book of Proverbs, Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman lays out seven major themes or snapshots that Proverbs gives, gives regarding wealth and poverty. And while some of these themes occur like more or less frequently, he suggests that viewing them together as sort of a composite sketch will give us a greater sense of clarity and nuance as to the wisdom that Proverbs has to offer us regarding wealth and poverty. This is how he puts it. He says, The topic of wealth and poverty is a good example of the dangers of isolating any single proverbial saying and taking it as representative of the teaching of the book as a whole. He goes on to say, Indeed, the book has been taken to promote the idea that godliness automatically leads to wealth. However, other proverbs acknowledge that the fool may have wealth, albeit temporarily. In addition, other Proverbs make it clear that the wise person will sometimes have to decide between wealth and wisdom. Amen. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Because sometimes God and money are going to say the same thing. They're going to say, yeah, you could take that job, take that better paying job. But there's going to come a time, is there not? When money says to go this way and Jesus says to go that way. And whichever one we obey, that's our true master. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't serve God and mammon, the God of money. 
So this morning, we want to try to take this more holistic approach. If you'll take out your scripture handout from Proverbs, we're going to do a brief walkthrough of these seven themes on wealth and poverty in Proverbs, and I'll elaborate a bit on each of them. So number one, first snapshot, God blesses the righteous with wealth. This might make us uncomfortable, but this is a consistent theme throughout Proverbs. It's unavoidable. Virtues like honesty, hard work, and wise dealings tend to lead both individuals and cultures into economic prosperity. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. However, <coughs> point number two, sometimes fools can also attain riches, but their wealth will not last. Right in our gospel reading from this morning, we heard about the parable of the rich fool. And Jesus says that he lays up treasure for himself, but he's not rich toward God. He's a rich fool. Proverbs also acknowledges that the rich can be morally corrupt. I think Proverbs 11:18 is particularly convicting. It talks about the wicked person who earns deceptive wages. What does that mean, deceptive wages? What well, means drawing wages or a paycheck for work that you didn't do? This is actually pretty common. Or, or maybe being just completely lazy and fruitless while you're on the clock. In modern times, we would refer to this as time theft. And it could be tried as a criminal offense. Now look, everyone can have an off day or a personal situation that affects the quality of your work. Maybe some of you guys work like a government job where they give you 40 hours a week to do uh, work that really should only take you about 25 hours, you know? I don't know. <laughs> but I do know that followers of Jesus are called to redeem the time. It's a matter of integrity for Christians to put in the hard work on things that they've been hired to do. It's part of our public witness, guys. And that actually leads us to the third point. Number three, poverty is often caused by laziness and foolish behavior. John preached on this last week. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Look also at Proverbs 28, 19. These words have a biting clarity. It says, Whoever works, with, works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty. They'll have plenty as well. Plenty of poverty. So plenty of food or plenty of nothing. These teachings are echoed in the New Testament. There was no room for laziness in the early church. Did you realize that? 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says... <coughs> For even when we were with you, Paul's saying, even when I was with you as an apostle, I was with you, we would give you this command. If someone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That sounds pretty extreme. Likewise, 1 Timothy 5 would be an interesting passage for you to look at on your own at some point. Throughout that passage, it differentiates between a true widow, a widow who has real need, and an idler who's going about from house to house and just gossiping and stuff like this. And it's saying, hey, listen... We, this is, uh, the church's resources are meant to help those people who are truly widows. And not just anybody. We're not just giving this to anybody who works the system. And, and it's not just uh, Paul who says these things. Um, Jesus confronts laziness as well. Remember when he tells the parable <coughs> of the talents in Matthew 25? The master gives resources to three servants. 
to each according to his ability, and then he leaves for a while. Right? And then he comes back, and when he returns, the first two servants are fruitful in their labor, but the third servant sat on his hands and did nothing, and had nothing to give to the master in return. And what does the master say when he returns? He says, you wicked and slothful servant. He confronts him for his laziness, and he throws him into outer darkness. According to Jesus, this is how it is in the kingdom of God. So one of the biggest moral problems in Proverbs and one of the central causes of poverty is laziness. However, number four, poverty is often caused by injustice and oppression. This is also a firm biblical truth that cannot be denied. Proverbs 13.23 says, The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. This is very common. And in making this point, we see that Proverbs offers a self-corrective against like an overly black and white view of reality. Does laziness sometimes cause poverty? Sure. But that's not the only cause. If we stop there, the modern reader would probably want to know, well, what about things like systemic oppression and wage gaps and prejudice hiring practices and access to education? And we would be right to bring up those questions. There have always been people in the world that due to age or race or gender are more likely to become targets of injustice. In the ancient world, this was especially true for the fatherless. Look at Proverbs 23.10. It warns us, do not move an ancient landmark. That was a stone or monument that was used to mark the boundaries of someone's property. It says, do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless. In other words, don't use corrupt means to dispossess the vulnerable, to drive them into lands that are less and less desirable or more and more small. This practice is still all too common thousands of years later. Presently, I serve on a committee for Frenchtown, and I've seen firsthand how common it is for rich businessmen to go after government funding that was earmarked for the poor. It's just so common. When Carissa and I were in Mexico in 2006, we noticed consistently that the poor, especially the Native Americans, had the worst land. Their villages were usually positioned on the side of mountains, it was less fertile soil, and they were more vulnerable to mudslides. In the 18th century, the famous American Quaker and abolitionist John Woolman wrote about the unjust treatment of Native Americans by the English settlers. He wrote, the natives have, in some places, for trifling considerations, sold their inheritance so favorably situated, and in other places they've been driven back by superior force. So if we can't get the deal we want to get from you in business, we'll just fight you. Because we're gonna, we, you have the land that we want. And this is still a problem in the world today. Talk about moving an ancient landmark. This was injustice of the first order. Now, Woolman, I highly recommend reading the Journal of John Woolman if you really want to meet, if you really want to meet a figure, a historical figure who has a heart for Christ and a heart for the poor. He was famous for his uncompromising battle against injustices of all kinds. And through his efforts, slavery was abolished among Quakers before the Revolutionary War. That was like 90 years before the Civil War. It was amazing. 
voluntarily, and in some cases he convinced Quakers to pay backlog wages for those that they had enslaved. Is that incredible or what? According to Woolman, this is how he warned his fellow Englishmen. He said the prayers of these slaves were precious in the sight of God, and there was a day of reckoning coming for all this injustice. He writes, quote, Many slaves on this continent are oppressed, and their cries have reached the ears of the Most High. Such are the purity and certainty of his judgments that he cannot be partial in our favor. In infinite love and goodness, he hath opened our understanding from one time to another concerning our duty toward this people, and it is not time for delay. In other words, Woolman is warning his fellow Englishmen, if it's between listening to their prayers and ours, the God of justice is going to be on their side. And it's not going to be pretty. This is exactly what went down in the book of Exodus. And here Woolman is basically repeating the warning of Proverbs 23.11, which says of the fatherless that their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. So even if nobody else sees, even if no one's able to stop you in this life, there is someone who always sees you move that stone. There is always somebody who sees you oppress the weak. It's the God of heaven and earth. So poverty is sometimes caused by laziness, yes, but it is also caused by injustice. God's word affirms both. And to be honest, I just don't see this kind of nuance in our current political culture. Do you? I turn on these news shows, I see a two-dimensional and unchristian conversation going on. Both sides fail to apply original sin evenly across the board. Right? One side thinks big business can do no wrong. The other side wants big government. One side puts too much blame on the poor for poverty, and the other side is content to let idle people work the system. And we trick ourselves into believing that uh, only the group that we're least sympathetic toward is affected by sin. But in the words of Sho Baraka, maybe it is both. Number five, those with money must be generous. To the Lord, to the poor, to your neighbor. This is crucial because routinely giving away money is one of the primary ways that we can guard our hearts against what Jesus refers to as the deceitfulness of wealth. You know, wealth is not a morally neutral thing. Read the New Testament. Read the passage we just read in 1 Timothy 6 this morning. The New Testament is consistently warning us not, you know, it's, I've heard preachers sometimes say, this is what you should know about money. Get as much as you can as long as you're not greedy. So the problem with that is nobody thinks they're greedy, right? <laughs> and the other problem with that is that doesn't sound at all like Jesus or like the apostles who warn us. Yes, there is a sense in which money can be used for good or for ill, of course. But it's not just this morally neutral thing that Jesus and, and Paul and John, they all, James, they all want us to know that when it comes to money, we have to be on our guard. It's more like being on the front lines than being in the embassy. Amen? So be on our guards against the deceitfulness of wealth. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, Honor the Lord 
with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now this verse refers to the practice of tithing among the Israelites. And one of the, this, one of the most important principles of tithing it, is that it calls us to set aside the first 10% of our earnings, the first fruits of all your produce. You see that? In other words, we don't just give God from our abundance, and we don't give God our extra. God doesn't want our scraps. By faith, we give to the Lord the first fruits of all our increase, and through this, we communicate with God. We communicate a sense of trust, of faith for the rest. And when you give, Jesus says, do not let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So we don't give to impress others. Don't give to impress me. I don't even know what any of you guys give. This is like a decision we made early on. I don't even look at that. And don't give to impress yourself. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give, as Proverbs says, to honor the Lord. But our giving should not be limited to the church. Proverbs 14.21 says, It is a sin to despise one's neighbor, but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. And as came out in the children's sermon, that's just a good word for us following Hurricane Michael, isn't it? Because I'm sure we'll all have opportunities to bless our neighbors and help those in need. Today we're collecting um, clothing for the busloads of people that are coming from up the coast um, and are being cared for at Tallahassee Memorial. Uh, there's a little box and some area in the side room over there if you brought clothes for that. In the coming days and weeks, we hope to organize trips to help our neighbors in places like Panama City and Mexico Beach. But it all starts with seeing our neighbor and having an open heart towards those who live nearby. Again, giving is an important way of putting wealth in proper perspective. But there are two other ways, and I'll end with these, and we see these in, in 6 and 7, these last two snapshots. Number 6, wisdom is better than wealth. That's really important. On the, on the balance, on the scales, wisdom is better than wealth, and sometimes there's a choice. Proverbs 16, 16 says, How much better to get wisdom than gold, to get understanding, is to be chosen rather than silver. Likewise, Proverbs 28.6 puts a moral spin on this lesson. It says, Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. And this leads us to number seven, which is that wealth has limited value. And especially on the day of judgment, it will not avail you. Proverbs 11.4 says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In our gospel reading today, the rich man had a good harvest, and he said to his soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. But there's a sad irony in this story. And it's not so much that this man missed out on the years of high living that he thought he had coming to him. 
is that this rich man missed out on heaven. And heaven was free. He missed out on the free gift of grace. He was never rich toward God because he didn't realize that God had been rich toward him. Friends, what is the gospel? But God being rich towards us. Christ died for the sins of the world. It's a free gift. We can take it or leave it. Money cannot buy it. Our lives, no matter how godly or generous, could never repay it. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, what, what's the deal? Like, what does Jesus want from me? I can tell you in two sentences. So no matter what you've done or how far you've strayed, this is the deal. He wants you to believe that he's freely paid for all your sins and ransomed you from everlasting death. He wants you to believe that. He wants you to receive that by faith. And then number two, he wants to fill you with himself and transform your life so that you can be a part of transforming the world. Amen? That's the deal. That's what Jesus wants from me. If you're like skeptical, I don't know what Jesus wants from me. He wants to forgive your sins and give you everlasting life. He wants to fill you with himself so that you can be transformed and be used to transform the world. So he wants to give you salvation and meaning. How does that sound? But it starts with the generosity of God. It starts as a free gift. The gospel says, for God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you received this gift? Have you received this gift? If you haven't, or if you want to do so again for the 10,000th time, I'm going to make some space here. I want to read out God's word from <coughs> Isaiah 55. And I want you to hear them for what they are, which is an invitation for you to receive freely the grace of God. And I want to make space for you to pray silently, to confess your sins, and to receive his forgiveness through Jesus. And if you pray that prayer for the first time, I want you to let me know when you come up for communion. You can just, when you come up, you can show John your hand like this. You can just kind of be like, that's me. And, uh, and he'll pray for you, all right? Okay, so this is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55 to you. God says, Let's close our eyes. God's word. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? in your labor for that which does not satisfy. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon I want to leave some space for you to talk to Jesus this morning with our eyes still closed. 
If you feel like you've been wandering, you've been far off, you have sins that you haven't confessed, that you haven't received his free gift of grace, I encourage you to confess your sins to him and to tell him that you want to receive the gift of grace given to you through the cross of Jesus Christ. encourage you, do not delay. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. As I close in prayer, I want to ask the leader of the prayers of the people to come up here and get ready. Father in heaven, your gospel says that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that we through him might become rich. Lord, that your son had all glory, all honor, and he emptied himself for us and for our salvation. We praise you for being rich to us. And Father, we pray that in believing that news, you would begin to rewire the way that we think about wealth. The way that we think about poverty. Lord, give us compassion for those who are far off. We come to you seeking the free gift that you offer not being presumptuous that we could take and see something that you're not giving, but you say that you're offering it. So we pray that we would have faith in the words of your son, Jesus, this morning, who said as he died on the cross, it is finished. In Jesus' name, amen.